Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi, everyone. Judge Andrew Napolitano here for Judging Freedom. Today is Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024. Our guest is Professor David Beto, Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Alabama and a senior fellow at the Independent Institute. David and I have been friends for a number of years. The professor is an expert on, among other things, American history and we're going to talk today about FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, not his presidency in general, uh, which in my view was one of the worst presidencies in American history, even though if you look at uh, the so-called experts who compiled the list of so-called great presidents, FDR is up there with Lincoln, the worst president in American history in my view. But we are going to talk about Professor Beto's new book on FDR and civil liberties and what FDR did when he was uh, Assistant Secretary of the Navy before he was uh, Governor of New York and before he was President of the United States uh, to invade privacy, and what he did as President of the United States to suppress speech, to invade privacy, and to incarcerate people on the basis of their ethnicity, the infamous Japanese internment camps. Professor Beto, it's a pleasure, my dear friend. I've read your books, uh, you know that, and we talked when I was at Fox about one of your previous uh, great books, and I'm happy to discuss this one. Welcome here to Judging Freedom. And thank you. It's been too long. It has. It has. This uh, show in the past two years has been devoted almost exclusively to the excesses of American foreign policy, particularly uh, the war in Ukraine and for the past three months, uh, the war uh, in Gaza. But we'll take a break from that because it's important uh, to remember the myths in American history. It's also important to remember the subtle ways in which the government has worn away uh, at our liberties. So tell us a little bit first about FDR the man, the public, liberal, adored by the media, the private tyrant willing to crush the civil liberties of his opponents. Yeah, there's there's quite a contrast. Nobody could be more charming. Uh, nobody gave better speeches. Nobody connected with the public more effectively than FDR. So he has that public persona. But in private, what I comes what I come across over and over again, this is long before I did the book. When I look at his correspondence, I look at accounts and meetings, um, is a kind of cynicism, uh, kind of ruthlessness. Um and a sadism, a sadism to some extent as well. Um, if you look at his 
public, his private persona. Trump is somebody who will just burst out and say what he thinks, um, outrageous very often, uh, repulsive very often, but he'll just sort of say it. FDR would say similar things, but he would be very careful when he attacked opponents publicly. It was with humor. Um, you almost kind of liked being attacked by him. So he was a very, very effective, but there was a double-sided nature to him. Tell us um, uh, about this Newport sex scandal and his persecution uh, of gays. Now, this occurred, I believe, when he was Assistant Secretary of the Navy. So we're about 10 or 12 years before he's President of the United States. But take it from there, please, Professor. Yes. Uh, during World War One, he and after, he was Assistant Secretary of the Navy under Woodrow Wilson. He was appointed by the Secretary to head... An, investigate, an investigation of the Newport uh, uh, naval base of uh, possible homosexuality in the Navy. And he this come, came to be called the Newport Sex Squad. And they used methods such as entrapment. Uh, they would hold people without charges for long periods of time, intimidation. And he went all for it. FDR was a progressive. FDR, as a progressive, believed that the, the end was all important, that you didn't worry so much about constitutional procedure. That is a consistent threat. You didn't worry too much about due process. You tried to achieve the just end. In this case, it was rooting out homosexuality in the Navy. Now, you'd think that that would be popular at the time because most people would have agreed with that in theory. Well, yeah, I think that's true. But his methods were so over the top, so extreme, that they, they were subject to an invest, several investigations, including one by the U.S. Senate, which called him in as a witness in 1921 and condemned him. And a lot of people thought his career was over with once the Senate issued its report, its headline news in the New York Times. People blamed FDR. Um, and they th a lot a lot of people thought his career was over with. Now, only a couple weeks after that uh, Senate report, FDR had his bout with polio starting, and he was able to make a recovery, a political recovery. And you know, possibly some of that was sympathy for him, and I think justified sympathy because FDR did face that problem very well, courageously. Let me let me uh, interrupt. But you. it's interesting the timing on that. Let me interrupt you, Professor. I mean, aside from uh, the targeting of gays, uh, what did he do that was so reprehensible? Did they entrap people? Did they send uh, investigators to to seduce young men in the Navy and then uh, once they had succumbed, arrest, arrest them? I don't know about the seduction aspect. I haven't heard that. But they would, they would, uh, yes, I guess they did do that in a way. They would go in there and they would imply certain things and uh, they would draw them in. Um, and then you also had people held for long periods without, uh, without charges. Because FDR only cared about the end result. He didn't care about the means. He didn't care about the process. He didn't care about due process. Well, this is a statement from his, uh, two of his own attorney generals basically said this. That, uh, that he was not a legalistic person. He, he did not worry about such things. He had a problem and he wanted to, he wanted to uh, solve the problem. Why, why did he view 
gays in the Navy, which today is commonplace, why did he view that as a problem? Oh, uh, you know, it was just seen as a, you know, this is the, this is the period, right? It was seen as a perversion. Uh, it was seen as uh, uh, that they could become vulnerable to blackmail. But a lot of it was sort of driven by the view of the time that this is a sexual perversion. We should not allow it. You know, we should not allow uh, gays in the federal government and the Navy and in any institution. Um, and we should force them out. That is just this. That is a standard view. But it's revealing that FDR's methods in this case were so uh, extreme that even under that standard view, he was seen as going too far. Did he try and um, deny that he had anything to do with it? Um, yeah, he did. Uh, at first, I think he was very, very clear that, well, why are they worried about this? Why are they so upset about this? But you do have a, you have FDR sort of trying to shunt this off on others. Um, he had obviously been appointed, so he would try to sort of say, look, I was just doing my job, that kind of thing. Before we get to the um, internment of Japanese Americans, probably uh, the darkest mark on his personal legacy and on his presidency, uh, tell us about suppression of free speech and tell us about surveillance and tell us about how he used committees in the Congress to take the blame for the suppression and the surveillance. All right. Well, about 1935, 34, 35, there's increased opposition to the New Deal. Originally, FDR's got total public backing because it's an emergency situation. But there's more and more opposition. So he wants to discredit the opposition. So he recruits through, you know, middleman, uh, Senator Hugo Black of Alabama, my own home state. Now, we often think of Black as a Supreme Court justice, but Black was a very ambitious, very ruthless U.S. senator, kind of a populist, I guess you'd say. I believe he was also a grand wizard of the KKK, was he not? He was also in the KKK at a lifetime. You don't know if he was grand. He wasn't a grand wizard, but he had a lifetime membership in the KKK. Um, and that was known, by the way. Um, it wasn't officially known, but there were rumors, there were stories. Um, um, the Chicago Tribune has a famous cartoon showing Hugo Black uh, riding as a night rider, um, as a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And this was before it was all officially released. But that information was out there. And he had, he had basically built his career to a great extent in the 1920s because of his ties to the Klan. That was officially revealed after he was on the court in FDR, who knew about this, basically publicly said, not publicly, he said privately, this is no big deal. A lot of my biggest supporters are in the Klan. Well, what did he and, have? What did he have Senator future uh, Justice Black do? Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Fail Better 
David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, well, Black would call in these witnesses and he'd grill them like a la Joe McCarthy, maybe much more extreme in some ways because he had the back end of the administration. But he kind of had mixed success. So he thought, how can I throw these people off balance? And Black came up with an idea or someone came up with an idea and suggested it to him. Why not get their private communications? What is the email of this period? It is uh, the telegram. It's over 50% of long-distance communication. It's in some companies, they've got telegraphers right there. Um, People say things in telegrams, just like in emails. They wouldn't say publicly. They don't save the telegrams, et cetera. So it's, it's a very important form of communication. So he thought, well, if I can get their private telegrams, I can really throw them off balance. And um, there was a law that required the telegraph companies, the leading one was Western Union, to save all telegrams. And so uh, Black had this idea. He said, I'd like to get access to their private telegrams. He goes to, t- to Western Union and says, I want all telegrams, for example, this is just part of what he wanted, sent by every mem- to and from every member of Congress for a nine-month period. I want copies of them. And Western Union said, no, uh, if people knew this, we wouldn't have anyone want to uh, do business with us. So he goes to the FCC and he goes to the administration and uh, the order comes down. Again, Roosevelt approved all of this, that they fully cooperate with Black and the Telegraph companies decided not to fight it. So they went in, his staffers, FCC staffers, they went in and they searched thousands of telegrams every day. In the end, they searched 3 million telegrams. It's mass surveillance, as I say in the title. Let me just stop you for a second. This was not done pursuant to a subpoena by a grand jury. This was not done pursuant to a search warrant issued by a judge on the basis of probable cause. This was just FDR's administration strong-arming Western Union to give Hugo Black all these telegrams so that he could embarrass FDR's political opponents. You are absolutely right. Now, in the past, private telegrams had been subpoenas, but they had to be had to be done through the legal process, and you had to name a person and give a certain period and so forth. This is thousands of people literally have their telegrams searched. And, uh, and of course, the order came down from Black that he said, well, if you see things when you're reading them, you know, to the staffers, private things, go past those and look at anything related to lobbying. What would be lobbying? Lobbying be what we're doing now, having any sort of impact on public opinion through discussion of issues. That would be lobbying under their definition. I'm not now, kidding. Who, who was harmed as a result of all this uh, violation of the right to privacy and violation of the Fourth Amendment? 
Well, the witnesses that were called in and that and, and that were ambushed were certainly harmed. Um, give you an idea of how outrageous this the outrage that built over time. Now, at first, this was all secret, but Western Union started to inform people that their telegrams are being searched. One of the people whose telegrams is being searched was named Newton Baker. Baker was Secretary of War under Woodrow Wilson, was a supporter of the New Deal, moderate supporter. And Baker was just outraged when he found out. And he said, look, if I saw a lynching party, lynching, this is this you know mild-mannered guy who says this, who's lynching Senator Hugo Black, I wouldn't join the lynching, but I wouldn't stop them when they put the rope around his neck. This is coming from a moderate sort of new dealer who was so upset. A guy finally sued, and his name was Silas Strawn. He was head of the Chamber of Commerce. He was head of the American Bar Association, the Golf Association. This guy was incredibly accomplished. Big Chicago law firm to this day um, that he, he was in. And Strawn sued, um, and then others sued as well, and won in the courts. But by that time, Black had done his big search, and he said, well, we don't need to continue our search. We've got everything. And the courts were reluctant to say, you know, to do anything then. They just said, don't do it anymore. And as a result of this, there was legal precedent, which was very valuable, which meant later congressional committees could not do this. Um, could not uh, tap phone calls and that kind of thing. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing now, but they couldn't do this kind of thing for a long time because of these precedents. And that would include, you know, the House Committee on American Activities, the McCarthy Committee. Take so us. Imagine the damage they would have done if they would have had this kind of same power. Take us to the um, internment of Japanese Americans, how it happened, who supported it, who tried to wash his hands of it? Well, this is a this is a story. Everybody condemns FDR now for uh, his role in Japanese internment. But if you look at history textbooks, what they tend to do is mitigate blame. They'll say, well, this is a hysteria. This was an emergency period. They'll point to polls that really were taken after the internment was a fait accompli, saying Americans overwhelmingly supported this, et cetera, et cetera. And FDR really had to do it. And he was distracted. That's another big one. He had so many other things to worry about. This is not true. The internment did not occur until two months after Pearl Harbor. And the initial response from the press and from others is, these are Americans. We, we're not going to put them in concentration camps, right? People urge FDR to speak out and calm the situation down and prevent the rise of hysteria, but FDR does nothing. Now, FDR was predisposed to do this. In, nine, in the 1920s, he'd written articles for the Macon Telegraph where he uh, supported bans on Japanese immigration, bans on Japanese uh, first-generation owning land in California, uh, uh, you know, uh, bans on intermarriage. So he was not a friend of the Japanese Americans. In the late 30s, he said privately at the White House that if we ever have an attack, right, all Japanese ship, people meeting Japanese ships and their family members in peacetime, sailors from Japanese ships in, in Hawaii 
will be should be put immediately into his words concentration camps. But now, I've got people, pushback. People, people said, "Don't buy concentration camps." Uh, hang on, he's hang on, that. hang on a minute, Professor. These people sure. that he put into American concentration camps were as American as he was. Exactly. You're talking about U.S. citizens. This is a somebody criticized. Uh, this is Senator Black when he was on the Supreme Court, wrote the opinion endorsing Japanese internment, and it was signed by Felix Frankfurter. And somebody said, Felix Frankfurter is um, uh, uh, supporting uh, concentration camps for people who qualify, unlike him, to become American president. Wow. Wow. And was there any ever, uh, ever any discussion about due process? Or were people just put in these concentration camps because they were Japanese-American? Japanese ancestry, but born in the United States. We're not talking about people that are of uh, 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 mixed race. We're talking about Japanese race, but born in the U.S. Legally uh, here, as American as apple pie, as American as FDR, in concentration camps because of their ancestry. Do I have that right? They're in there because of their ancestry. They even put, believe it or not, uh, orphans, Japanese, people of Japanese ancestry who were from orphanages, mixed orphanages, in internment camps. Now, didn't he um, And there was pushback, was... but, uh, and there was push, a lot of pushback, but not from the people enforcing this. Uh, certainly not from FDR. There was opposition to it, though. Wasn't one of the people enforcing this a guy who was the Attorney General of California by the name of Earl Warren? Yes, Earl Warren was. This is the uh, same Earl Warren who would become Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court uh, 20 years later, 15 years later. To Warren's credit, once once this is all over with, he welcomes back the Japanese people uh, to California and so forth, uh, someone who never changes his mind is Hugo Black. He he basically, till his dying day, says he thinks he was right in doing this. He said you you couldn't just tell them, you know, uh, you know, you couldn't tell them apart from each other, that kind of thing. <laughs> he would make statements like, well, "What that. what happened in the concentration camps? Uh, they were just confined and couldn't leave. They weren't executed or or tortured as in uh, German concentration camps. No, correct? no, they were not. Although uh, there were people trying to escape who were killed. Um, what became of their homes and, and businesses? They had to uh, sell them at, uh, 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 or they lost them, uh, but they, they had to sell them at... Uh, uh, basically, they were they were snatched up for in some cases for only nothing for almost nothing. If they had any family pets, those pets had to be destroyed because you couldn't take them with them. You had there's no there's no happy essentials. There's no happy ending here. The Supreme Court, in one of its worst uh, decisions uh, in history, a case called Korematsu, upheld this internment claimed it was done for military reasons, claimed it was done by the military and was necessary to prevent a treason in case of an invasion of the, uh, of the West Coast. Uh, in the Reagan years, Congress enacted the Civil Rights Act or the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, which gave $20,000 a head to the people surviving, a pittance compared to uh, what they suffer. 
but supposedly enacted a federal law prohibiting any uh, future presidents from doing the same thing. Was this FDR's idea? Was his antipathy uh, to Japanese persons so strong? Was his disregard for the Constitution he swore to preserve, protect, and defend so pronounced that he didn't care how they got there? He didn't care what happened to them. He just wanted them locked up. Was it his specific idea? I don't know if it was. He sort of he sort of lets he he sort of hands it over to others to the military, and he says, "You do what you know you need to do," and they come up with this, and he signs on to it. But I think he was predisposed to do this. His uh, his own attorney general opposed it. This is so, uh, J. Edgar Hoover opposed it. And the Attorney General Biddle writes about this extensively in his autobiography, which very few people quote for some strange reason. And Biddle said he went to FDR and he said, don't do this. And he said, basically, it was just impossible to reach him. He just was predisposed to think, well, the Japanese are this big problem. We got to do it. So FDR had people high up in the government. Secretary of the Interior, Harold Ickes, was against it. There were people in the military that were against it. That's why it didn't happen in Hawaii. This is very revealing. FDR wanted to intern Japanese Americans in Hawaii, 40% of the population. What did that mean? He wanted to send them to one of the small islands. They, the uh, military commander on the ground resisted it subtly, and it just was going to be too expensive because you'd have to take ships away from the Pacific War to right. transport these Japanese. When he ran uh, for re-election in 1944, it was already very sick and it wasn't a campaign uh, like we're accustomed to in the modern uh, era with debates on television and traveling and, and mass rallies. was uh, effectively conducted by surrogates and maybe by him with some speeches from the Oval Office. Was the internment of Japanese Americans a campaign issue in the presidential election of 1944? Let me say something quickly. You said, was it FDR's idea? I gave, a, I gave the example of Hawaii. That was clearly his idea. He pushed that, and it was, it was finally posed by people in the military. So that gives you some idea where he's coming from. 1944, right. it was not an issue, uh, much of an issue. Um, and FDR's advisor, FDR did not want it to become an issue. His advisors recommend he re release people from the camps. Biddle, Ickes, um, I could go down a long list of people, close advisors, military and so forth. Said, we don't need to have them in the camps anymore. The war has turned. There's no real issue here anymore. FDR refused to release them in 1944. Couple more questions. Urged repeatedly, kept them there all through the campaign, just because he more... was afraid of the electoral consequences. He said so. He was just afraid that close states to... might go Before against. We go. Why did the public love him so much? Why was there such remorse when he died? You know, here's an interesting thing. Um, Francis Biddle, who was again FDR's attorney general, condemns FDR. Uh, for interment. Very critical. But guess who he dedicated his autobiography to in 1962? FDR. So there's a double-sided nature here from a lot of people um, who 
you know, love the guy and they're willing to forgive these kinds of things. Well, I think that goes on with the, a, a lot of people in the public who end up sort of, you know, this hysteria is stoked up, end up supporting, end up supporting the policy. And so people somehow uh, don't blame him for these things as much as you might expect, even a lot of the fervent supporters, because they just love him in other ways. Um, and there is a very close connection between the welfare state and the internment, which is worth mentioning as well, which is interesting. Do you think FDR knew about Pearl Harbor before it happened? I haven't done enough research to make a definitive conclusion. I think he knew an attack was going to be coming. I, I, I think he was relieved when the attack occurred. But I think he knew that an attack was going to be coming. And I think uh, he was asleep at the switch in really... Um, uh, you know, uh, making sure that the U.S. was protected. Did he know an attack was specifically coming at Pearl Harbor? Again, I haven't done the research on this to say whether he knew specifically whether it was going to occur at Pearl Harbor, but I think he knew one was coming. Professor David Beto, the book is The New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights, the untold story of FDR's concentration camps, censorship, and mass surveillance, a brilliantly brilliantly written and prodigiously researched work. It is now the standard in the field. Professor Beto, it's a well, pleasure. Thank you. thank you very much uh, for joining us. Thank you. Coming up later today at two o'clock Eastern, Colonel Douglas McGregor at three o'clock, Phil Giraldi at four o'clock, Max Blumenthal, Judge Napolitano for Judging Freedom.